0: Welcome to another episode of This Rounds on Me. In this podcast, I'll discuss interesting medical cases and explore the concepts, physiology, and medicine surrounding them. This episode is called "I'll Be Back. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, that's awful, but maybe it's funny. I was on an early evening shift in the surgery ER, and this young woman, we'll call her Ariel, was brought in. She was pale, like really, really pale, Like, Snow White, whose skin was white as snow pale. And she looked really frightened. And she was bleeding profusely from her vagina. Now, getting an IV in someone, especially a young woman who's pretty dehydrated, can be hard. But someone somehow miraculously got an IV into her her arm. They ran a typing cross of her blood, as well as a CBC and a BMP. They got iron and coag studies. And when we saw her hemoglobin, whew, we went pale too. It was 2.8. No, I did not misspeak. Her hemoglobin was 2.8. Seeing anemia this severe just doesn't really happen. It's almost incompatible with life, but There she was, still alive. She was just really, really sick and needed our help. While she was being transfused, the other studies came back and showed that her INR was 4.6. She was not taking warfarin or any other anticoagulation that we knew, which was really puzzling. But at this time, it wasn't super relevant because we needed to stabilize her. We could figure out what was the reason for that later. She needed to be stabilized. So we gave her an intramuscular shot of vitamin K and some fresh frozen plasma. Thankfully, after that, her bleeding began to slow, and it finally stopped. We were able to breathe again. And repeat labs came back and they began to show that her hemoglobin was going up and her INR was falling. And now that she was stabilized, we had some time to think. The most immediate question was, why was her INR so high without her taking any anticoagulants? So we were asking ourselves that. And so I'm going to ask you that as well. So let's take a nice little aside and take a brief dive into what INR is, and that can help direct us to answer this question. INR stands for International Normalized Ratio. This is a ratio that's just a more standardized way of reporting PTT. Uh, Both of these are measures of the extrinsic coagulation pathway. Now, what's in the extrinsic coagulation pathway? It's primarily driven by factor seven, but it also includes factor 1, 2, and 10. Factor 1, 2, and 10 are also part of the common pathway. They're less specifically measured by INR slash PTT. Many drugs target this pathway as a method for therapeutically anticoagulating someone. One of the most notable of these medications is warfarin. It's also conveniently one of the most well-studied since it's been around since the early 1940s. Originally, the mechanism of its effect was unknown, except that it caused bleeding. So, logically, the first thought for its use was, this causes bleeding, let's use it as rat poison. And it was used as rat poison until 1954, when it was approved for medical use in humans. Fun fact, both President Eisenhower and my grandmother were two of the early patients treated with warfarin. Him, after having a heart attack, to anticoagulate his blood, and her, because she had antiphospholipid syndrome, so she would throw clots on her own. Well, back to warfarin. Even before it was approved for human use, it was characterized that vitamin K was its antidote. So, it's a good thing they had an antidote, because they were giving it to people. Um, But, It wasn't until 1978 that it was determined that the mode of action of warfarin was via inhibiting vitamin K-dependent epoxide reductase. This enzyme is necessary for generating multiple pro- and anti-coagulative factors. Any chance you know what they are? Okay, I'll give you a hint. Four of them are numbers, and two are letters. Any guesses? Okay, I'll tell you. So the pro-coagulative factors are numbers. Factor 2, 7, 9, and 10. And the anticoagulative factors are factor C and factor S. Now, one problem of warfarin is that some of these factors continue to circulate longer than others once warfarin is administered. So while factor 7 is pretty short-lived, and it drops pretty precipitously as soon as you give warfarin, So does factor C, and factor S is dependent on factor C. So the loading dose of warfarin tends to produce this transient prothrombotic state, which is not good. So to avoid this, in practice, we bridge it with heparin, which is another anticoagulative. Generally, the effectiveness of warfarin administration is measured by the INR, which is what we were talking about originally and a normal INR should be around one. Now, if you're trying to anticoagulate someone, the INR that you'd want should be around two and a half. Now that we know all about warfarin, I have to admit that this was a bit of a red herring for our case. This young woman had never so much as tasted warfarin. Also, other fun fact, Uh, Warfarin is odorless and tasteless, which is why it was such a good rat poison. But really, this young woman, Ariel, had never used that medication or any other anticoagulative medication. So, that brings us back to our question. Why was her INR so high? As wonderful as it is to have an abundance of these fancy lab tests and imaging at our fingertips as doctors, a good patient history is indispensable. So we talked to her, and she told us that about a year before this hospitalization, she was admitted for complicated cholelithiasis with a partial removal of the stone via ERCP. The procedure, the ERCP, was complicated, and so the gastroenterologists were only able to remove part of the stone. Ariel was scheduled to return for follow-up to monitor if she had passed the residual piece of stone, and for imaging, again, to see if there was any more stone left. But she never came back. Until now. Further, she reported intermittent belly pain for weeks to months before she came in this time. Okay, here's your next hint for this mystery. The name of this episode is Bile Be Back. Pretty clever, right? Well, you're pretty clever too, so let's think about a connection between what's going on with this patient, the bile, and maybe even my rambling about warfarin. It's a bit abstract, so we'll go piece by piece together. It sounds like she's having repeated symptoms of cholelithiasis, which, if you weren't familiar, is a big, confusing word for when a gallstone blocks the common bile duct and bile cannot flow past it. Also, I sincerely regret putting the word koloidokolithiasis in this podcast so many times because every single time, it's like my tongue is doing its best impersonation of one of those wacky, waving, inflatable tube men. You know, the ones that they have, like, as advertisements for car dealerships. Anyway, hard word. Um, so... Let's dig deep into our brain and try and remember the anatomy of the biliary tree. I'm going to try and paint a picture of it for you. So starting at the top is our liver. Out of him or her, we try not to assume your organs gender, come the right and left hepatic ducts, which come together to form the aptly named common bile duct. That branches into the cystic duct, which has been flowing down and carrying bile from our bulbous buddy, the gallbladder. Once these two ducts fuse together, they get a shiny new and descriptive name, the common bile duct. Then, right before the greater duodenal papilla, this vital entrance into the small intestine, the common bile duct gains one more friend, the pancreatic duct, which together, they run in and dump their bile and enzyme-rich goop into the duodenum. While bile has multiple important functions, the one we're going to focus on is fat absorption. Bile is a detergent in the same way that dish soap is. So let's think about it this way. If you've ever made burgers in a pan and the fat just goops up at the bottom and it's gross, and you try and scrub out the pan without soap, you'll look like Popeye before you're done. Your arms will be jacked. But... It won't be fun. And if you zap the pan with a little dish soap, it breaks up the fat and the grease just melts away, far less elbow grease. The soap and bile both contain a hydrophobic and hydrophilic side. The hydrophobic side binds to the fat and the hydrophilic side faces outward and fraternizes with the water. Nice. This creates micelles, which are these little lipid droplets that can be scrubbed off, if we're talking about soap, or absorbed, if we're talking about bile. Back to Arielle. She's displaying symptoms very similar to choledocholithiasis. So, that's a pretty reasonable working diagnosis. Now, if she had a stone blocking her common bile duct, she wouldn't be getting any bile into her intestine. And without bile, fat absorption doesn't work particularly well. Now, if this had been going on for a long time, she might have chronic fat malabsorption. And with that, she may even become deficient in some fat-soluble vitamins, which are A, E, D, and K. Pretty crazy, right? So due to her long-standing biliary obstruction, she had fat malabsorption and had become vitamin K deficient. Then, when she had her period, she would not stop bleeding. So this explains why the vitamin K injection and the fresh frozen plasma, which contains all these clotting factors, so quickly corrected her coagulopathy. And after a few days of recovery, she was scheduled for her ERCP. They removed the remainder of the stone and she made a full recovery. Thank you so much for accompanying me on that roller coaster of a case. I hope you learned something. This round's on me. See you next week. Cheers. This Rounds on Me is written and recorded by Ben Salwin. Audio production is by Ali Salwin. Theme music is "A Rush of Blood to the Heart" by Mister Ruiz, which is licensed under an Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International license. Cover art is by Aaron Ergan. For more episodes and info, check us out on This Rounds on Me Pod at Podbean.com.